0: Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Ratification Debates. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, The Federalists. The supporters and opponents of the Constitution tried to persuade people to join their side. The supporters called themselves Federalists, and this was a good choice, because really, they were more like nationalists, because they wanted a strong national government. But by calling themselves Federalists, they played up the side of states' rights rather than central power. The Federalists included most, but not all, of the delegates who had met in Philadelphia, and to garner support for the Constitution, three Federalists wrote a series of 85 essays called the Federalist Papers. You see... New York was divided on whether or not to support the Constitution, so the Federalists published these essays in New York newspapers under the pen name of Publius. By the way, Publius was one of the first consuls of the Roman Republic. We now know the three authors were Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison. And the only reason we know this is because the night before Hamilton was shot and killed by Aaron Burr in a duel he stuffed his drafts of these essays into a friend's bookshelf. Jay did write a few, but ended up getting sick and had to stop. And while Madison did write many more, it was Alexander Hamilton who did most of the heavy lifting. But here's something to make you feel really terrible. Most of these papers were first drafts, written in haste and sent off to the editor overnight. So next time you're writing a big paper for class, look upon thy works in despair please advance to the next slide entitled federalist arguments the federalist papers are some of the best essays ever written on american government and you should read them if you ever have time federalist number 1 says that there is a momentous opportunity to choose government for yourself federalist number 10 refuted the conventional wisdom that it was impossible to extend a republican form of government over a large territory of diverse people Federalist number 22, I find the most modernly prescient. Quote, One of the weak sides of republics, among their numerous advantages, is they are for too easy an inlet to foreign corruption. End quote. It goes on to say that elected officials may betray the public trust unless guided by superior virtue, and that those who can benefit from corruption and do not have a sense of duty will be infected by foreign influence which will destroy republics you should listen to these warnings in the words of us intelligence agencies trying to combat it federalist number 51 says that checks and balances will stop tyranny of any one branch of government but the problem with this theory as we are seeing now is that those various branches of government have to actually use their constitutional powers to stop it lastly federalist 68 i find to be hilarious Because they say that the Constitution is going to help stop cabals, intrigue, and corruption. You see, the Founders believed that because the President was going to be elected by the people, how could anyone possibly prostitute all of their votes? It would be impossible to sort of convince the majority of Americans to do something against their interest or against the interest of their country. And basically what this means is that there's no way in these people's minds... To propagandize to the entire country. Oh, how little did they know about Twitter, Facebook, and the demons of social media that are destroying our country today. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Anti Federalists. The Federalists labeled the Constitution's opponents as Anti Federalists, and this branding is a good move as it makes it seem like they are not in favor of a federated government which is a balance between a central authority and state authorities. Anti-Federalists included men like Patrick Henry, George Mason, Samuel Adams, and the young James Monroe. And these weren't bad guys. They simply feared that the national government would be too powerful under the Constitution. And many also wanted a national bill of rights. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Arguments. While the Anti-Federalists wrote many papers there are two specific ones I want you to know. The first is the Essays of Brutus to the Citizens of the State of New York, which questions how a widely dispersed and diverse people could be united under one government without sacrificing the blessings of liberty and self-government. In the letters from a federal farmer, the author argues that the Articles of Confederation were hastily thrown out, that the state governments are fine, so why try to overthrow them? and that the goal of the convention was to create national consolidation and make an aristocracy to reign supreme. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Ratification. There were special elections that were held in various states to draft members for the ratifying conventions. In early December 1787, Delaware's convention was the first to ratify the constitution, and in the aftermath, Three other small states quickly ratified the Constitution, including New Jersey, Georgia, and Connecticut. And most of them did this because they knew that the Senate would favor small states. Pennsylvania became the first large state to ratify, but Massachusetts was where there was going to be a critical test, because the failure to ratify there could have resulted in the demise of the entire movement. Now, initially, the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention contained a majority of Anti-Federalists. And the main issue they had with the Constitution was a lack of a Bill of Rights. So the Federalists promised that the first Congress would add one, and thus, they ratified the Constitution 187 to 165. So as you can see, it was a near-run thing. On June 21, 1788, three more states ratified. Maryland, South Carolina... In New Hampshire. New Hampshire was technically the ninth state to ratify, so theoretically, the Constitution is now the law of the land. But there was a problem. The two most powerful and populous states, Virginia and New York, had yet to ratify. Since Virginia was the largest with the biggest population, it was also strongly anti-federalist, and Patrick Henry was among the fiercest critics, saying the Constitution would kill liberty. Washington, James Madison, and John Marshall tried to influence the Federalist side, but they were continually opposed by George Mason, the father of the Bill of Rights. After a fierce debate, Virginia's convention narrowly voted for ratification in late June, since it did not want to become an isolated republic. But the debate in New York was even tougher. Things looked bleak, so to gain support for ratification... Hamilton and the Federalists actually threatened that New York City and its surrounding counties, which were mostly Federalist, would leave New York State and join the Union if New York didn't ratify. As a result, in late July, New York's convention narrowly voted for ratification. In the end, North Carolina and Rhode Island were the last two states to ratify, and both did not do so until after Washington's inauguration as president. So some of you may be asking. Where's Thomas Jefferson and John Adams of all this? Well, they're on diplomatic duty. Jefferson is the ambassador to France, and Adams is the ambassador to Great Britain. Jefferson was not so sure about the Constitution, and he wrote to Madison about his ideas that every generation should create its own Constitution, and he has like this weird way of calculating it out, so it should be like every 25 years we need to write a new Constitution and ratify it. And James Madison is like, are you crazy? You weren't here. Did you see how tough it was to get this done the first time? Never again. The point is that even though the Constitution was ratified, in many cases it was just barely passed, signaling to us that many Americans did not agree about the government of the country. And it remains that way to this day. So if you ever hear someone say, well, the founders wanted, stop them right there because the founders pretty much agreed on very little. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The First Ten Amendments. The First Ten Amendments to the Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. The First Amendment states that you have the freedom of speech, religion, and assembly. And unfortunately, we are seeing today how that freedom of speech and assembly is being curtailed by the government. Second Amendment states, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And as we see, the Second Amendment has caused much debate. In the opinion of the historian Gordon Wood, The founders didn't think about guns like we do. Guns just weren't a concern or issue. The founders certainly wouldn't have meant that guns should be limited to militias because it just wasn't a big deal for them. But they wouldn't have anticipated people in urban D.C. shooting one another. It'll be all right, though. Because you have the right to own guns and still have them regulated. End quote. As we have seen in previous lectures, there were many regulations pertaining to guns in colonial society, so we do have a history of gun ownership and regulation in the country, and perhaps the story of Thomas Jefferson illustrates this best. In the early 1800s, Jefferson set up the University of Virginia as an institute of higher learning. teach Southerners so they did not have to go to the North. But he became disillusioned when the student body cared more about horse racing up the commons, drinking and gambling, and shooting off their guns more than the classes. So he held a meeting with James Madison and dressed down the entire student body, and in the process was so overwhelmed with emotion, he broke down crying. I mean, can you imagine making a founder of the nation cry because of your actions, because you're a bad student? Well, Madison finished the meeting, but the students were obtuse. Instead, they protested, holding torches and guns, and ended up damaging property. Many were expelled, and for the next few years, there were periodic gun riots that erupted on the campus of the University of Virginia, until the final riot, which led in the accidental shooting of a college professor, and from that moment on, Guns were forbidden from the University of Virginia campus. So here we have an example of a founder who supported the Second Amendment but also gun regulations. The point is that history is nuanced and that the modern gun control debates are more about personal agendas than accurate history, so don't let any side of the debate lie to you. Let us move on to the rest of the amendments. The Third Amendment says there is no quartering of soldiers in homes, which is an obvious reference to the revolution. Fourth, quote, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants issued, but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized, end quote. On its face, this seems obvious and self-explanatory, but I want to illustrate for you how modern debates about constitutional interpretation affect your rights. In the 1920s, former president and member of the Supreme Court, William Howard Taft, said that warrantless wiretaps were legal because the Fourth Amendment says you're safe in your homes, and it says nothing about telephone wires that extend outside your house. In the aftermath of 9-11... Similar, narrow, literal readings of the Constitution have allowed for the expansion of the surveillance state, with lawyers arguing that the Fourth Amendment never mentions phones, emails, computers, or any digital information, since the amendment specifically says you are only secure in your papers. So we see now how sometimes a literal reading of the Constitution takes away your rights, because men 200 years ago Could not have predicted phones or the internet. Now, I'm not saying that all literal interpretations are always bad, just this one. So I suppose the point is protect your privacy rights because they're being violated, and be very careful about what you put online and say because everything is recorded and listened to. Moving on, the Fifth Amendment requires due process and the equal protection of the law, something that we're seeing right now does not always take place. Six, the right to a speedy trial, again going back to the Revolution and those Admiralty Courts. Seven, a right to trial by jury, again Admiralty Courts and the Revolution. Number eight, no cruel or unusual punishments, though they did still practice the death penalty back then. They were merely just saying, you know, unnecessary torture and stuff like that. So, you know, how did the founders feel about the death penalty? Depended on the person, but justice was very brutal back then. Number nine... All rights that are not specifically listed remain with the people. And number 10, All power that does not explicitly go to the Congress stays with the states and the people. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Living Document. The Constitution is sometimes called a living document because it can be amended and because there are sections that are open to interpretation. Enumerated powers, as we described in a previous lecture, are the list of delegated powers to Congress. Congress has the ability to tax the citizens, borrow money, regulate commerce, naturalize citizens, issue bankruptcy, coin money, establish a post office, which by the way, is under attack right now because of some very short-sighted politicians. But I digress. It allows Congress to issue patents and copyrights, create courts, declare war, create an army and navy, and govern the District of Columbia. But the Constitution also provides several clauses that allow it to grow. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 18, gives Congress implied powers. Quote, Congress shall have the power to make all laws which may be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution and the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, end quote. In other words, this is the elastic clause. In over 200 years, Americans have only amended the Constitution 27 times, the Bill of Rights plus 17 more. And the Constitution has also allowed the power of the federal government to expand to meet new challenges and dangers. And you will hear politicians in the media discuss at length the Constitution, but it's important for you to read it and understand it yourself. Because many politicians say they uphold only enumerated powers, but in ways that fly in the face of their original meaning. Likewise, others take implied powers well beyond constitutional precedents. Thus, all groups use the memory and legal precedents selectively for their own agendas. Again, history versus memory, and nuance is the key. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you are staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.